This is the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. We come to you in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of the Most High Yahweh. Tune in each week to hear teachings directly from Scripture, focused upon believing in the Father, His Son, and the holy and righteous law of our Creator. At the end of this broadcast, we will give you the web address whereby you may contact us for further scriptural information. Well, good evening to everybody out there tonight in Radio Land. This is Brother Matthew. The last couple of broadcasts, we've been talking about the Father and His Beloved Son. And you can go to my website at ministersnewcovenant.org and you can pull up sermon number 370 and also sermon number 373. And there you'll find part one and two of the series titled The Father and the Son. And what we're going to do tonight is continue to talk about this subject, but we've got a little something special tonight because I've asked a really good friend and brother of mine, whom I love dearly, to help me out tonight on this radio broadcast. And his name is Brother T.J. Martin. And the reason I brought him on here is because, oh, I've known him now for, what, four or five years? He is a what I'll call a former Trinitarian believer. I guess you might could say that. I'll let him explain it to you, what he believed or what he didn't believe. At least a former professed Trinitarian. And through the process of Bible study, he came to the conclusion that the Trinity was not taught in the Scriptures, but that there is only one God numerically, and that Yeshua the Messiah is the only begotten Son of that one God. And so... It helps sometimes to hear things from another perspective. I can only say that which Yahweh has graced my brain and my heart with, whereas somebody else may come at something from a little bit different of an angle. And so from time to time, I'm going to have special guests on this radio broadcast. So make sure that you continue to tune in each and every week to the broadcast. So I guess where we'll start off, TJ, is uh, let you tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about your testimony, your former beliefs, and where you're at right now. Well, I, I guess I've been in church nearly all my life. My parents took me to church when I was a child. I grew up in a Baptist church, not really studying the scriptures, but just going to church as a child. And then as I got older, I was, I guess, 23, somewhere around in there, I got married. And my wife and I started attending a Christian church. That's what she'd always gone to. I, the Christian church is offshoot of the Church of Christ. But anyway, we went for several years, probably three or four years, I guess, and started to study the Bible on our own. When we started to study the Bible on our own, it seemed like everything that we had studied, there was a little bit of truth to it, but a lot of faults. When we started studying about the Messiah, it seemed like the entire Bible speaks as if Christ is the Son of Yahweh and that, that Yahweh is one God with a unique Son, as our Savior. As we start to study and learn a little bit more about it, I, I start to question the fact of whether or not Yeshua is Yahweh's only begotten Son, or is He a second part in the in the triune Godhead by which we were taught. As we go through it and study it, it just becomes inevitable that Christ is truly the, the only begotten Son of Yahweh. Matthew, good friend of mine, he asked me one day if I believed in the Trinity, and I told him, I said, well, this is prior to the knowledge of that I had understanding that he was the son of God. He asked me if I believed in the Trinity, and I told him, I said, well, I, I think so. I guess I do. I believe in the Godhead, you know, not knowing but exactly what it stated or what it meant, only that, that we'd sung it in songs and 
Sunday worship and things like that. And so he told me, and I asked him if he believed in the same way, and he said no. And so give me a few verses to look at, and so I go home and start studying. That's kind of where all this starts to unfold. And as it unfolds, I come to the understanding that he's he's just truly his unique son. And through many verses and a lot of scripture study, and over and about a over about a year and a half of really looking into the subject, I think I've come to the right conclusion. Let me ask you this, Brother T.J. This is something I often ask people that I witness to that are professing Trinitarians. Were you ever, growing up as a child or even as an adult, going to a nominal Christian church, were you ever taught why the Bible teaches that God is triune or a trinity, or was it just something that was assumed that you thought you were supposed to believe to be saved? How did all that work out? I don't ever remember until I was grown. I don't ever even remember the the words trinity being mentioned. But when I got older, it still wasn't mentioned until I brought the doctrine up in church and asked, how do you see this at the church that we were going to? So it's not that uh, it's not that it wasn't present. It's not that they didn't believe it, or at least the pastors and the elders, deacons of the church didn't believe it. I really don't think that anybody understands it completely. I know people try to explain it, but I don't think they understand exactly what they're saying. When somebody would pray, they would always pray to the Father through the Son. They never considered the Son as God when they're praying. They don't. They don't ever pray that way. They don't pray to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's usually left out of it unless you bring up the the Godhead. You know, but we were never taught that you had to believe in a trinity for salvation until I brought up the point that I didn't believe that, that the Messiah was part of a triune God. I believed that, that Yahweh was, was one God, and he had a truly begotten son. And then everything kind of hit the fan, and the people of the of leadership, you know, they in the church, they thought that, uh, they thought that it was definitely detrimental for salvation that uh, Yahweh be a three-part deity. If I had to ask you what was the main scripture, or maybe I don't want to limit it just to one scripture, brother, but what was the main scripture or scriptures that caught your attention at first glance? Probably John 17.3 would be the be the scripture that, that bothered me the most. John 17.3 reads, you know, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent. Yeshua the Messiah. This is the Messiah speaking, and he's speaking to the only true God. This is eternal life, that you believe in the only true God. And Yeshua says that, Yahweh, you're the only true God. And they have to believe in you, and they also have to believe in me, the one you have sent. First Timothy 2, five. that would be another big scripture. You know, there's one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ. What was the reaction to elders or people that were in ministry that you knew? when you approached them and said things like, look, I don't see where the Bible teaches that Yeshua, whom they call Jesus, that Yeshua is the Almighty. Then you asked them to give you, you know, a Bible verse or verses. Could they persuade you to show that the Bible taught that? How did they react to your, your switching that understanding in your faith? I don't think they definitely could persuade me now. At least then they, they tried with a, with things like, um, they would use verses like Genesis 1.26, the us text in the scriptures, Old Testament. They would use some verses like that. John 1.1 is a common verse. I think everybody knows John 1.1 1, 1 and, mm-hmm. and uh, 1 through 14, and the word became flesh. Okay, well, let's, let's deal with a couple of those real quick. 
Okay. Uh, for instance, Genesis one twenty six. This one comes out often because people say, well, th- here's a verse that shows that the God of the Old Testament is a plural God. And they say, don't you know Genesis one twenty six? let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Well, how would you handle that, Brother TJ? Genesis one twenty six. it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and they will rule the fish of the sea. Well, I, w- I would say that, that uh, Yahweh is speaking specifically to his heavenly host right here. The answer that I always get is that the angels never created anything. You know, they don't have anything to do with creation. And I agree with that. I don't believe that they're creating anything. I just think that God is incorporating, you know, the angels when he says, let us make man in our image. In other words, if I were to, if I, it was dark in the room, there's 27 people in the room, and I walk over to the lights and I say, hey, let us turn on the lights. I'm not, everybody's not going to get up to flip the light switch on. I'm going to turn the light switch on. Everybody's just going to be a witness to it. And I think that's the way the heavenly hosts were to to all the creation. According to Job, Job says the angels shouted for joy at the creation of the world. So in verse 27, when we look at, at verse 27, so God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God, and he created them male and female. So it doesn't say that the angels created anything. It goes back to a singular pronoun, speaking specifically of him himself. Every time we see the angels in Scripture, it seems like they always come in the form of of human beings, like the two angels that come to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, and stood before Lot at the door. They come in in the form of men. Every time we see them, I think Gabriel in the book of Luke, when he comes to Mary, he comes in the form of a man, you know. That's the way we were to understand Genesis 1:26, and also, if we look at all the us texts in the Bible, when when uh, Yahweh's referring to somebody, or referring to Himself, and He says, "Let us," we have we have several right here, three I think, in in Genesis 1, and then we have one in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, when He's talking about the angels. Every time when He says "us," there, there's always angels present, and um and I, and and it's very rightly to be understood that He could be talking to the angels. And also, if the us texts are referencing him and somebody else, I always ask everybody, what are the singular pronouns? Because the singular pronouns prior to that are I, me, he, you know, all the singular pronouns that refer specifically to Yahweh. If we say that the plural pronouns like us, if they're referring to Yahweh plus somebody else, and they would agree with this because they think it's the Messiah and possibly the Holy Spirit. If they say that the us text is talking about Yahweh and the Messiah, which creates more than one person creating some, then the singular pronouns have got to be specifically talking about somebody in singular. What if somebody asked you, TJ, I understand that's a possibility there about the angels in Genesis 126. Why do you not think that it's a possibility that it could be Yeshua there that Yahweh is talking to in Genesis 126? What makes you exclude Yeshua from the us in Genesis 1. Well, in Genesis 1, we have no mention of the Messiah. We just have Yahweh. It says in Genesis 1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is a, a singular singular person, or at least as far as I know, I'm only in Genesis 1, 1. I've not got to any other verse in the Bible, so all I see is Yahweh here. Or God, we don't even have the mention of his name yet, but we see the word God right here. In Genesis 1-1, he created the heavens and the earth. I have no reason to put anybody else there 
at least as of Genesis 1.26, except for God created the heavens and the earth. And if we understand what the heavens are created out of, are created of, they're inclusive of the angels. It's not just the heavens, it's the heavens and all its hosts. Yeah. One thing I want to kind of touch on briefly here is um, what I generally find is this. There's a, a list of maybe, maybe let's say 10 verses that people try to use to place Jesus or Yeshua into the position of the Almighty, the Almighty God or Yahweh. And what generally happens is, is that people of the Trinitarian or Oneness Persuasion want to spitfire these verses at you one after another, not allow you to give explanations, and also not allow you to speak anything offensively. And I don't mean offensively in the sense of upsetting somebody. I mean playing the offense versus just playing the defense. So what happens to me, and I'm sure you too, brother, is that I very rarely get the opportunity to have someone stay quiet long enough to listen to the hundreds of verses that I have to share with them, what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks on this broadcast. And I end up giving explanations to them about Genesis 1.26 and John 1.1. One of the reasons that I explain those verses in a biblical Unitarian way is because of the myriad of verses that clearly separate and distinguish the Father and the Son as two separate beings. And so I'm pretty sure that you run into that as well. I don't think we ever get to play offense. We're just constantly explaining the way the same 10 or 12 verse, like you said, 10 verses, maybe 15, depending on you know what side you're dealing with. One is maybe less or more than Trinitarians, but Trinitarians would use basically the same verses. Everybody uses the same verses to prove that Yeshua is Yahweh. Or at least he's part of a Godhead or he's one with Yahweh or something like that. The problem is definitely that you're always playing defense because you have the answers. And if you if you ask them, if you play a little offense, you never get a rebuttal. Or at least I don't. I'm not saying that there, there's not theologians out there that hold fast to their theology. and But everybody that you deal with just on the you know day-to-day basis, the knowledge is, is not necessarily there. Not not to be mean or rude. I just think there's there's very few Bible students in the world, but the knowledge is not there, and so you you run into the local pastor at the. It doesn't matter which church we're at, but we just run into a local pastor, and we and say we preach the subject of the of the Trinity. Well, it's always you know John eight five eight or uh, John one one that gets brought up, or it's a, it's always the very common verses Philippians two five, where if I mention First Timothy two five, they don't touch it. If I mention John 17:3, they don't have anything to do with it. If I mention Acts chapter 3, they don't have anything to do with it. They won't deal with the verses. Instead, they just quote another one of their proof texts. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I ran into too, brother. I had a situation one time where I was talking with a senior pastor, and we were going through Matthew 16 just very briefly. And I asked the pastor, I said, why is it that if Yeshua really is the living God, instead of the Son of the living God, which that automatically makes two beings, why did not Yeshua explain this to Peter? Because he sure did applaud Peter for the answer that Peter had given. The pastor's answer to me was, well, he didn't have time to explain it to Peter. If you're a senior pastor, you should not be giving answers to people that ask questions about the faith that are that off kilter, that are that off base. But this is the kind of answers that I tend to receive. Or, as you just said, you give the explanation of a passage like John 1.1 that we've spent 
years studying about, and we went back into the Greek and also into the Hebrew origins of that passage. And instead of them rebuttaling your explanation, they move on to another verse and act as though you never gave an explanation to start with. That's right. And this is the problem that we fall into. Um, like Brother TJ said, First Timothy two five, John seventeen three, Matthew sixteen thirteen through eighteen, and we could go on and on and on and on. So, I think what we need to do is we have to keep in mind that we do not just need to be explaining verses that they attempt to use. We need to make sure that we have plenty of verses in our pocket that we know teach the separation from Yahweh and Yeshua or the separation from the Father and the Son. And we love, and TJ would agree with me, we love passages like Philippians 2, 5 That's through right. 11 and right. John 1, 1 through 14 and Colossians 1, 15 through 18. We love those texts of Scripture, but we understand them differently based upon several hundred and if not thousands of clear texts of Scripture um, about who Yeshua is. I agree. I think the verses are beautiful, especially the ones that they use for proof texts. I just understand them in a different light. And I don't have ten verses to prove that Yeshua is Yahweh's son. I have hundreds or thousands that prove his, that it's his son. If we could agree, I think with most anybody, especially a, you know, a theologian, that the, that the people of the Bible, everybody, not just one, but everybody, at least of the Jewish faith or the, the Hebrew faith, they were all monotheistic, every one of them. I don't think there's a scholar in the world that would that would argue that. I don't even think that they would think Peter was not monotheistic. They would agree that John is monotheistic. They don't believe that John, you know, believes in a in a triune God. That's not even a concept that would have been fathomed, at least in John's time. This doesn't come until later on. We can see it birthed around probably the third century or something like that. But anyway, if we read John's writing with the understanding that he was completely monotheistic, then he wouldn't be trying to impose that Yeshua is, is Yahweh in John 1. That's not his intentions. His intentions were to put out there that, look, everything that was to come to be, everything that was in, in Yahweh's mind, every part of his plan, was in the Word. That was the Word. That was the Logos. That was in the beginning. The plan that he had was in the beginning. And later on in the person of Christ, this plan come to life. It took on form, it took on flesh, and it dwelt among men in John one fourteen. Yeah. We can understand the scriptures that are gray by the black and white scriptures. The black and white scriptures are, you know, they're undeniable. If we just look at the, I guess, the capital verse, probably what used to be the capital verse anyway. John 3.16 in the Bible, it says that Yahweh give his only begotten son that we may have eternal life. It doesn't say that he give his only begotten self or part of his self or a third of his self or a third of the Godhead, he said here, I give my only begotten son, that unique son he give that we may have eternal life. And I think that verse that verse speaks myriads in its in itself. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's huge. But I definitely believe that um there's a lot more scriptures on Yeshua being Yahweh's only begotten son, his true, unique son. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more scriptures that support that than they ever do a oneness or trying to trying to bind them up in three and making a triune God. It's just not there. And I'm not saying that the, there's not some scriptures that may even look that way at first glance. The problem is the concept's not there as a whole. It's just not there. Yeah. One point that I like to bring up to people about John 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning was the word. As TJ has mentioned earlier, the word there in the Greek is logos. 
And Logos was used over a thousand times in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament text translated from the Hebrew. It's always in reference to a thought, a plan, a process, or a spoken word. They know in Genesis 1 where it says, And God said, Let there be light. And so this is why John 1.1 goes on to say, And the word was with God. And in the literature of Job and also some in Proverbs, we do see that a man's word is said to be with him. His thoughts and plans are said to be with him. And then it says, And the word was God in this sense. In the sense that the word belonged to God, and therefore in that way it was part of his being. Now, the son doesn't come in until verse 14. In verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh. And what the word became is not one-to-one with what the word was. So we would say that the Logos obviously eternally existed because that was God's word. But what the word became which was the person of Yeshua, the Messiah, That's right. has not always eternally existed. I told my son one time about our Dodge Caravan that my wife generally drives. I told my son Benjamin, who was under 10 years old at the time, I said, son, did you know that that Dodge Caravan at one time was in the mind of the man that made it? And he said, daddy, how could you fit that big of a vehicle inside of a man's mind? Well, what my son Benjamin was doing was he was equating what he was looking at with the original product. The original product, which was plans, thoughts, something in a person's mind, was not one-to-one equivalent to what those plans eventually became. That's right. Now, when those plans took upon themselves the form of a vehicle, and I'm speaking parabolic here in relation to John 1-1, you could look at that vehicle and see the intelligence of the one that created those plans, You could even see the person of the one that created those plans because you knew how skillful and how much of a craftsman that person was and his ability to create that vehicle. But that doesn't mean that vehicle, when it comes to fruition, is one-to-one with the man that created it in his plans, thoughts, and in his word. That's right. So that's kind of how we see John 1, 1 through 14 there. And it's not that we're trying to explain it away. I don't know about you, TJ, but I get people all the time when I give them an in-depth exegesis of a text, they say, well, that just sounds like you're trying to explain it away. Right. And the Bible is meant to be explained and interpreted in spite of what people tell you. We're not trying to explain anything away. We're trying to understand it in the original context that it was written. I could give you a 10-minute explanation on John 3.16, too. Sure, okay, there's sure. no problem with that. But what we want to do is... We want to make sure that everything is harmonizing together. We don't want to pit Scripture against Scripture. And as TJ said before, and I think it's a good rule of biblical interpretation, we don't want to trump 100 clear verses with one verse that could be understood more than one way. And when you have 100 verses that say one thing, and not just on this subject, but on any subject, and then you come across one verse that looks like, on the surface that it contradicts those 100, you should not toss out the 100 and say, well, they've got to be saying something different. No, you should interpret the one in light of the 100. And another thing is this. We're definitely would be the minority here. Unitarianism is definitely the minority, you know, compared to Trinitarianism or oneness or something like that. But the minority is not always wrong just because you're the minority. There's nothing wrong with being the minority. I guess it's easier to go with the flow. If you could find four or five verses that seem to support 
the oneness view or the trinitarian view like john 1 1 or philippians 2 5 or something like that or john 8 5 8 those kind of verses you might want to hang on to those verses because if somebody asks you well how do you stand in your faith or who do you believe the son of yahweh is if you're oneness you'd have to say that i believe he's he's yahweh i believe that yahweh took on the form of flesh became man and dwelt among men that kind of stuff or if you're a trinitarian you'd have to say that he's uh he's yahweh's son but he's still god he's god's son but he's still god and it keeps him on a i guess a level playing field or at least it keeps him grouped up with the people that believe or like-minded with them and it makes it a whole lot less stressful in the world that we live in if you're not at odds with somebody it's easier to get along with people but we have to learn to stand on our own two feet and we have to be true to the scriptures and if the scriptures say that yahweh had a son and in his son yeshua we have eternal life then we have to really believe that he has a son mm-hmm. and i believe it's detrimental to salvation i don't mean to put anybody in the lake that's not my goal here i'm not trying to send anybody to eternal destruction but what i do believe is john 17 3 says this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and the messiah whom they have sent and it's highly important mm-hmm. to understand this this is the testimony of the saints mm-hmm. and uh revelation 12 revelation 14 they have the testimony of the messiah you know, this is the endurance of the saints, what I meant to say, the endurance of the saints, is that they have the testimony of the Messiah and that they keep his commandments. And so if we say that we have the testimony of the Messiah, we have to know that he is truly the son of God. Mm-hmm. He really had a son. And anyways, what's so wrong with him having a son? Mm-hmm. What's the problem with, with Yahweh having a son? He said that I had a son. He gave his only begotten son that we may have eternal life. That's a huge sacrifice. But I believe this subject is really strong and we need to know the truth about it. Yeah, I agree, Brother TJ. First John 4, verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Yeshua is the Son of Yahweh, Yahweh dwells in him, and he dwells in Yahweh. And I've asked many preachers, can you show me anywhere where it's essential that we make a confession that Yeshua is Yahweh? Whether you're talking about the oneness persuasion or the Trinitarian persuasion, one thing they have in common is they both believe Jesus is God or Yeshua is Yahweh. And they can't give me a scripture the reason is is because it's not in there. That's right. I've looked far and wide for it because I want to believe the truth just like everybody else or just like a lot of people I think do. Shouldn't say everybody else, but the scriptures are absolutely crystal clear that we have to believe that Yeshua is the son of the most high or the son of God or the son of Yahweh. This was Peter's confession in Matthew 16. I remember when I went before the leaders of the church that I came out with I remember going to him and presenting some of the evidence that I'd found in the scriptures that Yeshua was truly Yahweh's son. And John 17, 3 was a big one for me. And so when I presented that to the elders, I said, look, it says that this is eternal life. It's really important that we know that he is truly Yahweh and he had a son. And we have to believe in both of them. I remember the pastor telling me, he says, well, he says, you shouldn't be so dogmatic about it. And I said, I'm not being dogmatic about it. I'm just reading the scriptures. I'm not being dogmatic. This is Yahweh's book. I'm just reading it. I said, but he's pretty dogmatic about it, or at least the Messiah is, because he says that this is eternal life. And at first he told me, I remember him saying, it's not something that we need to draw a line in the sand about. It's no big deal. He says, but you're wrong and you need to study it out. The Trinitarian doctrine is the truth. We don't need to draw a line in the sand. I don't think it really matters, at least salvistic-wise, whether you believe that he's part of a Godhead or if he's God's son as we believe in a Unitarian sense. So I remember him telling me this, and after I shared John 17, 3 with him, like the next time I talked to him, I remember remember him telling me that if I didn't believe that 
that God was a triune God made up of three parties, then I was doomed for destruction. What do you say to people, Brother TJ, when they say, well, you need to give honor to Yeshua. You're taking away some of his honor. What, how do you respond to that? I don't think that I'm taking away any honor. I'm giving him the honor that's due to him. There is no man greater than our Messiah, Yeshua. He is perfect, and we can honor him, and we can pay him homage, and we worship him. But we worship him not as Yahweh, as the son of Yahweh. We're not lifting him up to a God status. If you lift him up to a God status, you've got two gods. Or three if you include the Holy Spirit in the Trinity aspect. But if you do lift him up to a God status in the oneness view, you don't have a son. You lose the son. So I think that we can worship the Messiah. And when we pray, we pray to Yahweh because the gift the Messiah has given us. He's broken that barrier so that we may reach the Holy of Holies, that we may talk to Yahweh without being covered in the wretchedness that we should be covered in. You've been listening to the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. Our website is ministersnewcovenant.org. That's ministersnewcovenant.org. Please visit our website where you will find hundreds of audio sermons as well as videos, books, and articles explaining various doctrines in the scriptural faith. For questions, you can also call 678-347-6240. That's 678-347-6240. Thanks for listening, and according to His will, may Yahweh richly bless.